0: Welcome to the Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community.
1: Hey. Hello, James. How's it going? Good.
2: Good. James looks more serious than the rest of us, that setup
0: he's got. What? No, right? That is an
3: awesome setup.
0: Is my mic working? Yes, Yes, it is now. Okay, cool. (laughs) I was talking to Amos for like 10 minutes and he was refusing to acknowledge me.
1: That's awesome. Well, I
2: try not to acknowledge you in public. <laughs> I don't want people to know I know you. I know.
0: It's bad for all of us. Can you all hear me
1: oh, now?
2: James has a Kansas City shirt on, too.
1: I do have a Kansas City shirt on, yeah. I can hear you, Anna, but you're a little quiet.
3: All right, thank you. Is that better?
1: I would still say a little quiet.
2: Okay. Yep, that's that. Every time you use that mic, you have to get really close to it.
3: What about now?
0: Getting better.
3: Let's see.
0: Testing. Is that uh, better? That's, that's, a better. Okay. that's a lot better. This that this whole like setup process is just part of the show at this point.
1: Like, yes. This, <laughs> this, this <laughs> is the show. Too soon? Is it too soon to make no. that joke? No no. <laughs> no, no. No, no. no it's perfect. Perfect timing. <laughs>
3: so how's it going, everybody?
0: Things are going well, Anna. How are things going for you, Amos? This is well, Chris speaking. <laughs> chris, keep, chris keeps giving me books so uh,
2: uh-uh. we suggesting books so i um i'm not getting anything done and and one of the books that he suggested to me was getting things done which is just put off more stuff. <laughs>
1: that's than you can do. amazing
2: and that's awesome. uh the philosophy of design is another one um which has been a a great Transition out of Piftis for a while Because
1: <laughs> you, you know how that one's going <laughs> Amos is going to need a support group for that book uh, I am <clears throat> I am Hey Amos mm-hmm. This is Chris
0: again I'm making sure that people <laughs> Understand who we all are But if you want to, uh, do you want to introduce our guest Which is uh, a show first For having a guest on
1: A <laughs> show first have you not had a guest before now? No, we've it?
0: had guests. We just never introduced them. Oh, oh yeah. It's going to be a
3: show first. Yeah. Perfect. Good job, Chris. True.
0: Yeah, sorry. No, no, no. Actually, like, being courteous to our guests and, and like, introducing who they are as opposed to just assuming, every, like, everybody's clued in. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point.
2: Uh, so so today uh, on the show, we have James Edward Gray the Second, or JG2, Online, James uh, has written a book, is pretty prolific in the Ruby community, and is doing Elixir, and uh, is involved in a conference coming up that we might be involved in. Uh, maybe, uh, James, you want to talk a little bit about yourself and that conference?
1: You guys are going to the conference? Uh, well it it
2: depends on if chris's wife has a baby or not that's true (laughs) i might be watching his children
0: while he's (laughs) going to a hospital
1: holy cow wow
0: that's true yeah
1: that's exciting
0: that's a non there's a non-zero chance that that might happen (laughs) (laughs)
1: let's see um uh i yeah amos said who i am i was really active in the ruby community for many years um if you listen to podcasts, I did the Ruby Rogues podcast for like three years. Um, and now I spend most of my time in the Elixir community doing Elixir-y things. And I recently had dinner with Chris and Amos. <laughs> Anna wasn't there. Uh, we missed you, Anna. We did. Oh, I missed did. you all
3: too.
2: We had we had a, a great dinner and a great time there at Strangeloop. So fun. quite a few things. And, and then um, the er- Erlang ICFP was was pretty great. James, you you made it to, I think, just the first talk of that.
1: The first two, yeah, the morning. First then I had to drive back. Yeah, yeah, it's a long drive. It is. Yeah, for sure.
2: What do you guys have on your mind today? I know that James sent out a few things that he wanted to talk about. I brought questions. Uh oh. Okay. <laughs> All
3: right. Cool. All right.
0: I'm sure Chris will answer him for you. I'm, I'm, yeah. I
3: mean, <laughs> Chris is ready. He's, coffee, he's,
1: wired, he's ready.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, this is probably one too many coffees. we right, be for, be for being, for being honest. Perfect
1: for a podcast.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's not the
3: first time that's happened. I feel like we hear the one too many coffee situation often.
0: It's because of the podcast. Like, I intentionally <laughs> do that. Yeah, it's yeah. unhealthy for sure, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> but it's part of it.
1: Yeah, it's fair. Really suffering for his
0: art. When you can't get a good
2: aerobic workout for your heart, just drink a lot of coffee. Oh, there right. you go. It <laughs>
3: replaces the need for a good
1: aerobic workout, right? That's how, it, that's how that works? I don't mm-hmm. think that's how that works. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, can I ask questions? Yes, please. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm going to give this talk at to City Elixir, and it's about using less code to solve our problems. Um, but along the way, I, I, I want to touch on several questions. So I'll set this up with a few questions. Let's say I assume that we would all on this podcast agree that... If I needed some functionality that exists in a heavy dependency, it would be like a big dependency with lots of things, but I only need a little bit of the functionality. So I could either bring in this big dependency or I could just write, let's say, like 20 lines of code. I assume we would all agree that I should just write the 20 lines of code. Does that seem fair? Yes. Yes, that seems (laughs) fair. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so now let's go the other way. I also assume we would all agree. I'll I'll try to use a Chris example here. that if I had to do raft consensus, <laughs> oh, oh, wait, wait, wait you, we we may be going down a
2: dark path. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. No, no, no. This is okay. good. We're, let's do this. If I, I like make it.
1: a term for the worst. Uh, <laughs> if I had to do raft consensus, say, then in that case, I should probably go ahead and use the library or framework or whatever because. It's too error prone, and it's just too likely that I'm going to screw something important up. Right. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And and hopefully some free maintenance along the way. That, right. <laughs> that <laughs> if, yep. like I don't know enough about raft, so I'm I'm hoping somebody else will take care of that part
1: for me. Exactly. Right. Okay. So here's here's the actual question. This is like a continuum, right? Of on one <laughs> end, we we solve the problem ourselves, and on the other end we lean on a dependency for the maintenance, for the solving the problems we don't understand or, or stuff like that. And my question is, most of the time, like where should we be aiming to land on this continuum? Like, do we want to be like right in the middle? Do we want to be a little closer to one side, the other side? You know what I'm saying?
0: Mm-hmm. Who, who wants to go? Because I'm ready. I've got an answer. Go Chris.
3: Go Chris. <laughs> I don't want to be... Go, Chris.
0: I I push back on these stereotypes that you all have created for me, okay? (laughs) (laughs) You you created these yourself. We haven't
3: created anything for you. What are you talking about?
0: (laughs) So in my mind, the thing that you're driving towards, if I was going to like kind of like shape or or frame the problem in in a specific way, and you can tell me if I'm off base on this framing, bringing in a dependency is a point of coupling. And we know that, we could sort of take it as read that coupling is bad. Like most of the best practices that exist in software development are in a lot of ways to like help reduce coupling because coupling keeps us from being able to move forward and change things and all that kind of stuff. So any dependency you bring in is a point of coupling. So to me, in my mind, the power of the abstraction, the power of the dependency, which is an ephemeral word that I don't have a good definition for at the moment, but like, the power of it has to outweigh the cost of the, of that point of coupling. Is that a, would that be like a fair framing of, of, of,
1: of the question? Some degree. Oh yeah, I think so.
3: And how do you define when it does outweigh that? Right.
1: Yeah, that's right. Good question. Yeah. I think that's
0: going to be, it's tough. I think that's going to be very dependent on where your project is in its like life and, the context of the people that you have on your team um, working on it. and
3: so, Can you say more about that depends on when, where the project is in its life?
0: I don't want to, I, the, I, 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 I battle internally with this all the time because I've definitely worked with, I mean, as you have, right? And I like uh, at C5, like you see plenty of early stage companies that are like, I need something. I've got three months to like get a thing out into the wild. And I don't even know if this idea is good or not yet. And I just need Mm -hmm. something out there to even just prove that like I could make a business out of this. Mm -hmm. Otherwise we run out of runway, right? Yeah. And otherwise we literally don't have a business. And as a consultant, like, I feel like your job is to enable that. Like your job is to do that, is to allow them to figure those things out. And if that means like cutting corners, bringing in extra, I mean, I think this is like, you see this in the proliferation of like Ruby gyms, right? Not to like, I'm not, not to bag on Ruby or whatever. Like you see this in proliferation of lots of libraries and lots of ecosystems, like libraries that do things that arguably you should be doing, left pad. but that you can defer to somebody else, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, left pad is like the funny example, right? But like, there's plenty of things that I actually think that you know you don't need a gym for or whatever but maybe you just do it because that'll like you know that cuts a couple days off of your timeline and if all you've got is days like if you can measure your your runway in days those days matter
2: i was just going to say to to me one thing it matters is what is your current domain knowledge of the thing that you might be pulling in. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have the time to put into it and the domain knowledge to put into it? Or is this going to be a huge learning thing? So because Chris has me reading philosophy of software design, the first thing I thought of was he puts in a, uh, a complexity um, function in here. And uh, I, I think that it kind of comes down to the complexity of the problem, which uh, he, he puts in here as um, the complexity of each part that you're pulling in Mm -hmm. uh, times the fraction of time that a developer is going to spend on working on that part. So you know if you're gonna it, it, it might be super easy but let's say it's gonna take four weeks to do maybe you don't have that kind of time or it's gonna be really really complex but take a little bit less time. So I think that you have this complexity versus time thing that you have to think about whenever you're deciding to pull something in and maybe your time is better spent just reviewing the code of a dependency that you might pull in to see if you think that it's worth pulling in or not
1: well i love that as an idea Like going through the dependency and seeing how much of its paradigm it's going to impose on your code basically Mm
2: -hmm. right yep and then can, can you protect yourself from that future change too like if the interface is not very big, would it be easy for me to wrap it inside of my own interface so I can hide that a little bit, that that coupling into one place so that maybe I can switch it out later for my own? It depends that, on like how littered in the code it's going to be, how prolific in the code are you depending on this thing. And uh-huh.
3: also, I mean, I think time plays a big factor in that complexity component, right? Because how much of this talk about complexity depends actually very in a very real way on how much time you have. Mm -hmm. to Chris's point about getting something out for like, if you have to get it out within a few weeks, will there be more complexity because you have less time or is there a way that you can mitigate that? Right.
0: I think a big part of it is um, it's also the, the, and this, and this comes down more to uh, experience in just, you know, doing this a lot and kind of understanding, Mm -hmm. you know, getting a feel for these sorts of things. But I think that there's, you know, the the time part of it is also like, what is the time spent? What, what, not even like what is the time you're going to spend up front, but like, how many touch points are going to be in the rest of the code? How much? How many? How often are you going to look yep. at the thing? Because in his equation, where he's saying, you know, the total complexity of a system is all the individual pieces times the number of time you spend working on it. It's not even mm-hmm. just upfront. It's like over in the general. course yep. of yep. the thing. So if you can hide a thing, that's as good as removing that complexity. Yep. Forever. Like you don't deal with it anymore um, from a cognitive burden standpoint.
1: Yep. Um, so the interesting thing to me is, it sounds like you're. We almost all agree that upfront, you know, when you have to move fast, the dependencies can be really valuable. So then when the app enters like the mid to late life stage, do we then go back and remove those dependencies in favor of replacing them with our own? I knew like, that question was coming that's a really
3: good question
1: like i don't know if that happens a lot do you think? wait has
3: anybody actually had an experience of that happening
1: yeah uh, yes i've, I've, done, I've that. done it but i wouldn't say it's common
0: it's yeah. not common. And, it was, and it wasn't fun
2: can we all right.
1: Read? Yeah, <laughs> right. It, it, right.
2: it was a very painful process uh
3: what led you all it, to decide to do that then uh, other, I mean, than a compl- other than a dependency maybe is no longer supported or...
2: Yeah, yeah. Cetera, uh, right? So that's what I was going to say first was it was unmaintained dependency yep. was the first example that I can think of. And another one that um, was that it, it we had certain performance characteristics that we had to meet that the dependency wasn't meeting because it was more general than actually what we needed. We needed something, maybe I would call it like a s- very surgical... Strike. I, I I just needed to pull the appendix out. I that which doesn't mean I had to cut the entire chest open. And that's a terrible that analogy. No, I mean
3: <laughs> but essentially by removing the dependency, even though you needed it initially, you are making you are lessening the complexity of your system, right? Because you are only essentially reintroducing the piece of complexity that you need.
2: Uh to, Is that to fair? point. Yeah. yeah. But the the big thing that made it hard to pull out was we did not wrap our dependency, so we had calls to this everywhere, Mm. and I'm not sure, I'm not sure how much that would have changed if we did wrap it, because when you wrap it and you're looking at one interface, and then you try to change it to another interface, unless you did a lot of upfront thinking, which when you're in that hurry runway, I'm running out of runway phase, you often aren't doing as much thinking about what are the repercussions of the interface itself, and so when you do wrap it, a lot of times it's, it's really a facade of the exact same interface, which is not helpful.
0: We had a a project once at uh, C5 where um, along, you know, previously some other people had added, uh, I'm trying to remember what the gym is called, whatever. It doesn't matter. I don't want to malign like their gym or whatever, but they had brought in like a gym to do um, uh, authorization type stuff. And so they had all these rules and they had all these, and there was like all these classes about like how they did authorization and all those sorts of things. And there came a point where we realized the business wanted these really rich, interesting rules about, you know, and roles and who could be assigned to like work on certain things. And like that, it was this really complicated thing, but like that was how their business worked. They needed to be able to do that, like for their business. And this gym is designed to be this like very conventional off the shelf thing. And we literally could not like shoehorn I mean, we could have spent a lot of time shoehorning it in there, but it became untenable to continue to like shoehorn these like really complicated rules specific to that business uh, into this library. And at that point it was like super hard to start pulling all that stuff out of there because it's everywhere. It's like littered throughout the code and it's broken all these And the the way that those, that gym wants to work is it like wants hooks into all of your models and it wants hooks into all of your controllers and it like ties all these bits together. You know, that was, that took far too long and became a huge, and became a a major impediment to actually like providing value to that business. Because like now we were in this place where we had to pay down these debts to in order to provide value to the business. And to me, that's the place I never want to be. Um, especially as a consultant, definitely as just a programmer in general and as a human, like, I don't want to be in the place where like I'm impeding where my decisions are impeding the business, which is paying me money (laughs) to provide value to like not be able to provide value.
1: Um, like the business is asking you for features, A, B, and C, and you're saying, hang on, I'll get to that. As soon as I unbuild this mountain of doom, I've constructed uh Yeah. yeah, I mean, isn't we that, talked. Isn't about that this... what
2: all design is, though? Oh,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: it's trying to trying to uh, not end up in the mountain of
0: doom. Yep. We talked about this last week, and there's this great Rich Hickey quote that um, that I just I love and we're down to all the time. But it's um, you know programmers know the benefits of everything and the trade offs of nothing. And like, that to me is what's epitomized in that, right? It's like, we knew all the benefits of using this like off the shelf thing. And up until we had got to a place where it was no longer a benefit. And then, and now it's like, oh, well now we're, now we've really painted ourselves into a corner here.
3: But given that it's so hard to predict that situation sometimes, right? Like how do you mitigate for this increased complexity that then becomes really difficult to remove, right? Like as we're designing systems and as we start, you know, I'm also starting to get into that book. Um, how can, it's it's a, it's a really hard thing to, to do, right? Because we also don't want to like over-optimize for something that's not going to exist, mm-hmm. right? And we want to solve the problems that we have at hand. But then we get into these scenarios, right? This is not a new problem that we see. I don't know if there's a good answer to that, but...
2: How about you, okay. James? Where where do you yeah. stand where on, you on think, the answer James? to your question?
1: Uh, I don't know. I haven't decided yet. Um, I, I would say, um, I think you kind of hit on the key point when you were talking about Uh, removing something. And I think it's that dependencies in general are always generic, like they have to be to serve a wider audience, right? But when you know your problem, what exactly your problem is, you can write a more targeted, you know, specific for your needs thing. And almost surely that's always going to be superior if you have the ability to do that because you can solve what anna just said the problem at hand right the the actual problem that you have um and so that's almost always going to be better but then you know when can we spend the time to do that and when can we not spend the time to do that is a huge part of it, like which I think we hit on right off the bat, but uh, but I, I want to throw you one more twist if I can. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's do one more twist, um, guys. Let me let me say it again. let me try this differently. Strangely, I had this cool aha moment while I was sitting at a talk uh, about Rust and Node. The talk was about Rust and Node, mm-hmm. and um. It was by Ashley Williams. It was a great talk. If you have not seen it, look it up. It's great. But she said at one point that Rust doesn't have a runtime by design because Rust is meant to run on everything, like your toaster, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's got to be like the lowest level thing possible. And it doesn't have a runtime. And that's by design. And that's a feature. And that's awesome for Rust which then led to this kind of aha moment in my head, which is in Elixir, it's all about the runtime, Mm -hmm. right? It's the beam. All Mm -hmm. the great things come from the beam, right? And this Mm -hmm. runtime and this ability to spawn process and have concurrent everything while basically just writing imperative code and stuff like that. So then my question is, does Elixir view this equation of the trade-offs of rolling your own and using an off-the-shelf thing does elixir change that equation slightly like would you make different decisions in elixir on that continuum than you would in say rust
2: that's a that's a hard question as you can tell by the silence (laughs) (laughs) i i i don't know that it Changes it much for me. Like I, I appreciate the runtime and everything that it gives to me, and I did choose the language that had these features instead of having to find a package that has those features, right? But I don't. I don't know that that changes how I choose to pull in even more dependencies. I am depending on the runtime because of my language choice, but that doesn't mean that I have to pull in more or less packages for other design decisions or choices. I don't. I don't know that it changes my thoughts on it
1: so i think it does change my thoughts on it and so to give the contrast to what amos just said for example in ruby if i build a web app and i have a web application running and now i need to do some background processing my first thought is go grab uh gosh it's been so long i can't remember sidekick, sidekick, sidekick kick, or kick. rescue,
0: rescue or one of those
1: right. yeah exactly. go grab one of those um, in elixir if i need to do some background processing that is not my first thought my first right. thought add a supervisor to the tree and launch some processes under the supervisor i'm good to go mm-hmm. uh,
2: so you're coming at it from a different angle than what i was thinking but so to me that's something built into the language but are all dependencies like that are they just built in i see what you're saying
0: yeah i don't yeah i i totally get what you're saying and i think for me. I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. So like in my mind, I mean, while we've sort of talked about like if you're an early stage company, it's like fine to pull in those dependencies and that kind of stuff, right? Um, but I want to add like an addendum to that, which is for me, I think my goal over the past however many years, definitely when I was doing full-time consulting, my goal as a consultant was to make it so I never had to do that. Like I felt like that was like Im- imperative on me as a as a developer to get to a point where I could say, I I don't need to pull in a dependency because like I've learned a lot about this and I could implement this myself. Like and implement it with the trade-offs of like myself, especially if it's something small. Um and I felt like that was a thing that I wanted to like get good at not in sort of a like not invented here kind of way but like more in like a if we don't need to do this but we're doing it out of necessity like i don't want necessity to ever drive a decision to like add complexity if that makes sense and so i think that dovetails super well with what with with like my enjoyment of elixir was all of a sudden i got this runtime and maybe this is kind of what you're getting at it's like i got this runtime where it's like i'm not burdened anymore like i'm not burdened by anything i can do like I can solve all these hard problems that were really hard to solve in other runtimes. They're just gone now. And I can just build highly concurrent things and I can build uh, stuff that is fault tolerant, like at this like really granular level. Um, and so, yeah, I think in that respect, Elixir sort of helped um, in a lot of ways like fuel that, which maybe isn't a, maybe that's not a healthy or mature um, uh, a viewpoint to take, but it definitely like fueled that in me. Um, I think there's some potentially something to that.
1: Is that what you meant earlier, Chris, when you said it depends on who you have on your team? So like if you have a team of people that are very capable of solving these problems in a reasonable amount of time, you would lean more on just solving the problem yourself instead of pulling in a bigger dependency or something like that?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, and specifically, like if you had a group of people who had domain experience in the specific thing like you're obviously going to be more inclined to bring to do that stuff yourself because like you understand the Mm trade-offs that are going to have to take place to do that um and i think that like team that team composition it's hard to ignore that because if you don't have people who have you know the subject matter sort of experience hard one knowledge you know you're gonna be um it's gonna be a pretty big time sink to like spend a bunch of time on that not to say it's like not worth doing for your edification but like from the point of view of like providing value to the business like it may be that you just need to like lean on someone else's experience for a little bit until you gain your own which is fine that's like totally reasonable that's awesome i like that
3: yeah i like that a lot and i think that kind of alludes to i think we talked about that list a little bit last time right like Part of it, part of the complexity is domain and part of it is how we're building the system, but part of it is also exactly what you just said, Chris, like the team and the team's current understanding of the domain and the system, right? Like that definitely Mm -hmm. either lowers or increases the current state of complexity, depending on their understanding.
2: Yeah, I mean you can you can look at the Elixir ecosystem and see where see that people gaining that knowledge. If you look at back a little ways, you start seeing where people are using Redis from Elixir and background cues and starting up all these things that look just like Ruby or, or Mm -hmm. any other language Mm -hmm. that you might use. And, and as the community learned more about the runtime itself,
1: that stuff went away.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Now people just fire up ETS or even grab a dependency like ConCash or something, Mm -hmm. which is, Uh, what I would call a smaller dependency, which is just firing up BTS for you, right? And putting Mm -hmm. a kind of a pretty elixir in your face. Mm
0: -hmm. I've started using things like registry a lot more um, because uh, as opposed to, it depends on the use case, but as opposed to doing, um, to to using ETS on my own. uh, Mm -hmm. Like if I know I'm going to have a lot of things in ETS, um, I'll often use registry because they're doing really smart, like, Bucketing and sharding across S tables to make lookups really fast and that like they've done a ton of work on registry and that's like a so that provides a lot of power uh, over the normal abstraction that you would have to build on your own. And it's a re, I, like those are sorts of the, the things that I lean on more now is sort of these more I don't know it's hard. It's, it, I'm, I'm so poisoned by like philosophy of software design like my, my, I look at everything <laughs> and through that lens now and it's hard not to look at what he calls deep modules, right? Modules that provide a lot of power, but with a very small interface, like without, without actually doing too much, they're giving you a ton of power. Um, and registry, I think is one of those, like registry is doing a lot more than just like storing keys and values, but it's like they got this really, relatively like simple interface to just like put stuff in there. Same with ConCache, like ConCache is doing like smart stuff behind the scenes that are somewhat, you know, non-trivial to manage on your own. Um, And those are, those are good dependencies to like, to pull in where, you know, if all of a sudden you were doing less with a shallower interface with like a wider interface with like more functions or whatever, that's, you know, you're naturally going to end up coupled to that thing in like much more gnarly ways. And it's not giving you a ton of power for the cost of that coupling.
1: So do you say you use registry for like, even things that are, outside of its typical usages, like not pub, sub, not process registration stuff like that.
2: Yeah, Uh, I have the same, same, mm
1: -hmm. same thing.
2: That was my mind blown thing was I never thought about using registry (laughs) for anything except for processes, process registries.
0: Yeah. 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 But I mean, if you think about like what, like the process registry, right? Like the point is like, you need to hold like this giant, like list of keys and values. Just a yeah. lookup
1: table, right? Yeah, it's just a big lookup
0: table. And like registry is really good at that, uh, being, uh, being really fast. It can handle like tons and tons and tons of inputs, which as it should be able to, because it's, it's meant for like registering processes. But it's kind of like misnamed. Like it's really just a really good key value store <laughs> local to your box, like that's like highly efficient.
1: So those kind of dependencies in some ways are more powerful, which I think is what you were saying and I'm just catching up to, is uh, that this dependency that just does this one thing really well, but is pretty narrow and like you're only going to make a couple calls to it, start it up, put things in, take things out. um, That is a superior kind of dependency to something like a big framework that wants to take over a large portion of how you write your application, or something.
2: So yeah. So then, why? I I think I have an answer to this, but why aren't there more dependencies that are are thin and deep?
3: hmm I was going to ask the
1: same question.
2: Or thin? What is a deep? So so not wide, but yeah. Like so, a small interface, but but very powerful.
1: So in the Ruby community, there's. Uh, kind of this small subculture uh, that sometimes went by the name of the less code movement. And they do have a bunch of dependencies like this, um, like uh, Cuba as a web app. And then there was one that came later, I think Zero or something like that, that replaced it. And then Ohm, um, was like a database dependency. It was actually built off of Redis, which was unusual, but it was like a complete database layer in under 500 lines of Ruby, I think. Uh, And it did like models and and similar to kind of the active record conveniences and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Moat was a rendering engine, kind of similar to ERB and stuff like that. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was like under fifty lines of Ruby code, and like, um, there were these like very focused dependencies, but I wouldn't say they were mainstream. Like you had to get off the beaten path, right? Yeah.
0: Was like the dry? Um, was all the dry RB um, projects where that was that part of that whole kind of subculture? I remember seeing these, but I, I never really.
1: I don't know. That's a good question. I'm not familiar with the dry RB stuff. What's that? like
0: it's just a bunch of little packages they they kind of do a lot of like functional kind of stuff in in a haskell vein of functional like there's like a dry rb monads and a dry rb functors like and stuff like that to me like it's like not the stuff you're talking about because i think the stuff you're talking about is is the right is the right approach like you want a thing that does like a considerable amount of stuff um The dry RB stuff was a like too was a little too small in my mind. Like it doesn't give you enough power for like attaching yourself to this to to this to this thing to this Mm -hmm. to this dependency. That's the word. Um, it for for me like I don't want type classes as a dependency. Like that's not interesting enough. This isn't enough power for me.
1: Right, right. If you have functors or something, you have this new tool to build things, but you're still building the thing, right? Whereas, like what you were saying with registry, it was like, hey, they already built this awesome thing and it's great at what it does and a couple of things that they didn't even intend it to be great at, you know?
0: Yeah, and it sounds like that's the same thing, that's true also of like, um, uh, you said it was OWN, the database engine that you're talking about?
1: Right, or CUBA, or
0: Yeah, I mean, those are giving you a lot of power. It's a hard problem, like storing stuff consistently in a database and like talking and providing the right interface to that is hard. That's a lot of power. And that's worth having a dependency for in my mind, to me, in my like personal sort of um, rubric.
3: I have a little bit of a larger question, which is James mentioned, you had to really go searching and that type of dependency is a little bit more off the beaten path, even though it's, it's a harder problem to solve and they are deeper dependencies. But what does that say? The fact that those are the dependencies that are off the beaten path, right? Like about how we generally develop software and that most dependencies is, the trend is for them to be more general, right? And is that is that the right approach?
2: I, I think that people gravitate towards that because when you're starting out, I don't know what I'm going to need. Yeah. So it's easy to grab something like Phoenix and Ecto that does almost everything that you can think of. Uh, but, but we... I mean, we do have this in the Elixir community. You have uh, Peter Saxon is a pretty big pusher of of cracks, um, I, I, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and 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 other um, what I call micro libraries. What's the uh, what's the one for talking to? It only talks to Postgres. Mm-hmm. Mobius. Mobius. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's raw Connery's jam.
3: I just think it's interesting the fact that those that those dependencies exist, but you really do have to go looking for them, which says that most people probably don't go looking for them, right? And maybe that's a, maybe that's because at first you don't know what you're building and so you want something more generic.
1: There um, was definitely a pretty epic thread on the internet at one point about um, Cuba and whether or not it was okay to use Cuba for like uh, consulting web apps and stuff like that. And one side was arguing, yeah, we've done it for years. We've had great success with it. We're doing fine. It lets us, you know, it keep our dependencies manageable. If we have a problem, we can actually crack open the code and read it and have a chance of understanding it and things like that, you know, and uh, the other side was arguing, yeah, but you're going against the norms. So like developers who come in, you know, they're going to know Rails and not Cuba and Mm -hmm. uh, and then they're going to have to learn the differences and you're having to in other things from the ecosystem to handle some things that Rails handles for you, which then the other side counters with things like, "Yes, yeah, true, but Rails also does XML parameters, which we've never ever needed or wanted or right. you know cared about having or things like that." And it, it's a very interesting thing, back and forth. I, yeah,
0: I, hard, I have such a hard time with that because mm-hmm. you know, like, I have a, such a hard time understanding the mentality of um, this is what everybody knows, so that makes it good.
3: Yeah, like, that's kind of where I was leading with that.
0: It's it's not I, I good. Understand it, it's why, business-wise. I can under, wise, well, but I can, cheaper. I can empathize with like with like that logical argument. Like, I understand how you could make that logical argument. I just like fundamentally disagree with it to, so much so that it's like it kind of blows my mind that people make that argument <laughs> like I well don't know, and i think
3: but, the point that i was trying to get to and maybe i wasn't maybe and this is not a, maybe this is not a valid point but like well, as we think about building systems right and when we're first starting or we we talk about these norms as like okay we'll just use this thing that does all these things and we're not thinking about I mean, and and why are we not starting thinking about, well, what are the things I actually need? What am I trying to achieve with the system? Right? So we do, we learn, we tend to use these more generic tools and maybe, and then again, like maybe setting, having a set of norms is not bad. I just think it's interesting that we have this paradigm that we're in that gets repeated over and over again across languages and communities, et cetera.
2: I mean, look at, look at the other side of it too. So open source software, you're putting yourself out there. And as a, as a library author, um, it, it, feels good even if you're not in it for fame and glory it feels good when people are using your system so Mm -hmm. if you can make it more general and applicable to more people you're likely Mm -hmm. to get more more people using it more bandwidth more feedback than if you have this surgical strike Mm -hmm. library that that a smaller subset of of the developers out there are going to use so the community kind of pushes you mentally to go yeah no to, i to totally agree things with that that are more general because i totally
3: agree
2: yeah like like look there's a phoenix phoenix has got its own talk at every elixir conf all over right. the
0: world right well, it's, because it's elixir and phoenix conf Amos. well right. right exactly exactly <laughs> but there's no racks talk
3: right but then you think think about the book you're reading right now right like it goes, it's It's not, and I don't, these things aren't bad. I just think it's interesting, right? We're talking about right now and what James is talking about, which I think is really awesome is like, we write less code. But when we first start, we talk about, we do have this paradigm using these dependencies that are more generic, that inherently, generally involve bringing in more code, right?
2: Mm-hmm. And And there are probably more junior developers too, which makes it easier to just grab this general tool, mm-hmm. right? Yeah,
1: no, I totally agree. I just think it's an interesting... That's actually an interesting question, though, to me. Is it easier to grab something like Rails and teach someone Rails, where you have to teach resource routing and a bunch of other things just to get going, or is it easier to grab something like Cuba and teach them, like, the three things that Cuba does, you know? It,
2: It probably is easier to grab something like Cuba, but they are more likely to have, uh, even if they're like first year developer, they're more likely to have looked at Rails or looked at Phoenix versus Cuba. Well, and I think
3: the trade-off there, we're talking about productivity and time, right? Like if you are first picking up Rails, you probably don't have a deep understanding of everything that's happening. And if you needed to really, if you were really starting to fight with Rails because something that you were doing, it would be hard to figure out exactly what was happening. But for the most part, you can be up and running quickly, right? Whereas with a smaller dependency, you have a much better chance of early on being like, "Oh, I know exactly what this is doing." And if I'm running up something, I'm running up against it, I have a much clearer idea of how to deal with it. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe I need to be able to build more things to get to the state of productivity. So,
1: And you to, to know, go ahead. Hey, no, 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 no. Go I
2: ahead, was going to say, as a developer, uh, you know, early on in my career. If I have a choice between going to a shop that's doing Phoenix or I find this shop that's doing Racks, I'm going to say, well, I hear about Phoenix all the time, so that's probably mm-hmm. wh- where it's best for me to get experience. Yep. So I'm going to the Phoenix shop, and yep. as a business that's hiring, this is the reason why there are yep. so many businesses hiring mm-hmm. tons and tons of Java developers. Yep. It's because they're, they're available. There's people that understand it Mm -hmm. and it's cheaper often to hire a a lot more Java developers than it is to hire somebody who's going to come in and, and create some brand new piece of software that's more focused for you.
3: Yeah, no, I totally agree.
0: I think there's also, I mean, I don't know how I, I don't know how I, I mean, I know how I feel about it. Um, I'm well, it's complicated. Like there's also this thing of like, if you teach I mean, because this is uh, the thing I think about. Actually, is um, is Railsbridge, right? If you teach people Rails, you can get like this whole group of people jobs. Like, yep. like the barrier, or rather, like the barrier to getting them a job is one less thing now, right? Uh-huh. As not only do they know programming, but they know like this tool, and you can now like I want to use the uh, it's. It's not like you can like sneak them in, but it's like-
3: There's more opportunity available for folks that know Rails.
0: There, there's just enough people in the world who only want to hire, who wouldn't hire like a Ruby person, but would hire a Rails pe- person, or like that would be a barrier to hiring someone, whether or not that's like, whatever bias is like coming through in that decision, like someone will make the decision like, I want to hire Rails people, whether or not that's right or wrong, and like, that's one less barrier now in mm-hmm. order to like get that person hired, which is like, a, that's like an,
3: a, no, that's really real,
0: but like the trade-off is like, would they learn as much, if not more like about the underlying fundamentals? If you actually sort of build it up from first principles. Yeah, actually probably. And like, is that person going to be like set on a better path? I don't know. Arguable. Like I learned most web stuff through like Java struts and later spring, and then I learned Rails. And it's like, you know, I, you, you get there eventually. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like if you just keep doing this long enough, but you know, it's, it's tough, it's tough to say. Like, I, th- I mean, I think we could be setting people up for, like, for better intuitions about design and about things if we could approach it that way. Uh, but then the the, then the problem becomes like I don't know, like if our goals are like you know if you like think about a boot camp, right? Like if the goal is to like get all these people hired at the end—that's what I was about
3: to say. Some
0: some large amount of them hired, like some percentage of them hired. It's like you don't want to be the boot like as a business even. You don't want to be the boot camp that does like the weird thing, because well, no,
3: because you want to get. Well, I mean, and it goes back to like I think the very beginning of this discussion, which is like it depends on the goal for the thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it depends on the entire context, like how much time you have, how much new resources you have and what is the end goal that you're trying to achieve. Right.
2: right. If, you, if, it if, is, you,
3: if it is sorry. like hiring somebody or if it is getting a site up and running really quickly, right. Or if it is, and you don't have a lot of domain knowledge, right? Like what is the goal? And then how do you think about achieving that? And then weighing again, because there's always going to be trade-offs with time, with complexity, with knowledge, right. And then weighing those so that you think you're making the best decisions. Right.
2: And, and which school do you want to go to when you're learning the one that teaches you a general purpose tool yep. that gives you the ability to, to do way more. Mm-hmm. Or do you want someone to teach you how to do HTTP requests? No, totally. And then you have to learn everything else.
3: It's totally true. Um, I think it's just interesting, right. We're talking about like now the benefits of smaller, deeper things, but where does that come into play? Right. And I'm not I'm not I'm not it's like a little bit rhetorical like we're talking right, about. Right, 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 but, but
0: I but I do think there's something there. And Amos, you said this earlier, like, you know, you get a you, you get more junior people who like it tends to be that junior quote I'm gonna use quotes here, which you can't see on the podcast. But, like,
1: <laughs> but, like, Chris like, right he, now is moving his fingers up and down.
0: Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Junior people, you know, do tend I think tend to reach for more off the shelf tools or or rather they like i think they reach for like rules they reach for like i don't have an intuition about this yet and so in order until i gain an intuition about it i'm going to use whatever the community has like agreed upon and there's like a comfort in that and 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 support and support that's what i
3: was about to say
0: right, right right yeah that's all part of it i think like there's that comfort level of like I'm using a thing that's well established. The thing that I want to point out is, and why I'm saying junior in air quotes, is like, we're all juniors at some level about something. Like if I walked Great. into some other language or some other runtime or some other domain, I would be, I mean, I'm doing, okay, so actually I'm doing this right now. Like, cause I'm learning, I'm uh, you know, in my other time, like I'm learning more about ML and I'm doing more ML stuff. And this is um, a, a new domain for me. And I'm leaning on a bunch of tools that like people say are good until I gain an intuition about how these things work. And I think that a lot of people, we catch a lot of people in that transition, Mm -hmm. like, especially because Elixir is still so new. We're catching a lot of people in that sort of transition from their previous thing to the next thing. And they're just looking for like that comfort for somebody to tell them like, this is the thing to use. You can like trust us because we've been around here, and we're and we're telling you that, right? They're not ready to make those sorts of leaps on their own yet, potentially.
3: Well, and I think that's which salary, might add to that. If you want somebody to get there and to build the intuition, they need to have something that helps them develop that, right? And so they need the tools to get there.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: un- unfortunately, it kind of goes back to just like a startup money, right? You mm-hmm. have. You have a limited amount of time. you want somebody to be effective quickly and possibly in a broad range of things. So again, teaching them the general purpose tool or pulling in dependencies is is what they're they're going to do. So a, a junior developer is a lot like a startup and and so maybe until you've been a little further into product to where you have money and have an extended runway, you can't it's it's hard to make those trade-offs.
3: Well, that's kind of going back to this continuum that James was talking about, right? It's not one or the other. It's kind of like, where are you on that? And mm-hmm. where does it make sense? James, what are, you, what are your thoughts on what we've been talking about?
1: Oh, it's what been amazing. It's like, um, I'm doing all my homework here, you know, because I have to answer all these hard questions <laughs> in my talk, so I figured I'd just ask you guys and then say whatever you say. <laughs> I don't know if you want to do that. I don't yeah, know that you want to do that. That's this. a good rubric. <laughs> Maybe not a good strategy. Huh? me about that. Um, that's cool. No, I love what you're saying. And like as a, a person, I my instincts lean closer to Chris's. Um, I really try to rely on like I remember one time I was working on an app that had this hash diffing dependency in it. And it was just a library that given two hashes of arbitrary nesting, right, it would, you could call diff and it would go through and figure out what the differences were between the two data structures. And I remember when I ran into that and I was like, how come they didn't just, you know, do a recursive walk down the tree and and figure it out? Like, it's like, I don't know, it's a little bit of code. It's like 20, 30 lines, right? To figure it all out or something. And, um, but it, it's pretty straightforward. And then I ran into this issue where this library that we were using diffed something in a way I didn't agree with, you know, and it was like, <laughs> why did you do this? And so then I ended up opening up the library, and yeah, it was like not much more than 20, 30 lines of code, you know, and, um, and at those kind of dependencies, I, I mean, I'm not saying it's wrong to have a hash diffing library or to use it or anything like that, mm-hmm. but in my instinct, if I ran into that problem, I would just write the diff function first mm-hmm. um, because I feel like I can solve that problem. And I would be confident that I would solve it the way I want it solved in this particular instance or, or whatever. And so I do lean on that and that experience. And um, I would rather use a Cuba if I can get away with it. Like if I'm building a blog or a, let's talk about a, um, a, a URL shortener, right? Where you have what, three pages? enter your url then okay here's your shortened url and then the one action that isn't even a page it's just a redirect that takes the shortened url and pushes you to the other one right Right. if you start that with rails new or phoenix new is that a bug i kind of think it is you know like i mean couldn't you build that with just straight up plug like that's not very tough right like whatever, and my tendency is to reduce that complexity. But I, I liked what's been said about the trade-offs and why we make those decisions and why we sometimes push faster and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. It is a lot of trade-offs. And like while I appreciate the junior aspect and being able to give them the more general tool and the support and the comfort, sometimes I counter that with sure yeah you don't know what this does yet but guess what it's like 30 lines of code let's go read it you know like Mm -hmm. let's see what it does you know and i i feel like you can get a lot out of that angle too
2: that's
0: true i think that's how you drive your career to some degree in my mind or at least it has been for me like taking that extra time when i can find it to actually do the thing myself or to like learn about it you know like the diffing example is a great example like if you've never written a a, a tree like diffing two trees that's a good exercise to go through it's going to take you like a little more time the first time you do it but it's a worthwhile endeavor because the next time you come across that problem like that's a that's a tool in your tool belt now like you know how to diff trees you're like oh i've seen this like i i can diff trees
1: and that problem comes up a lot in my experience of we have this data over here and this data over here, what do they have in common, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. And it has all these like knock-on effects of like, you learn a little about, about data structures, you learn a little bit about um, uh, recursion. You know, you, you you start to get a feel for
1: these things. And like, it
0: only good can come from that, I think. Like from encouraging people to do more of that.
1: So I feel like I've monopolized the heck out of this conversation. But there are two other people on this podcast giving talks at Gig City Elixir. So I want to hear about stacking theory and cryptocurrency.
0: <laughs> Go ahead, Anna. Go ahead, Chris. No, no, it's you first. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, the talk that I'm giving, it's a I've given before, but the talk that I'm giving um, at Gig City um, is essentially, and I've talked a little bit about this before on the show, but really... The goal is really to try and remove some of the complexity that i think people think exists around cryptocurrency um, especially people who are new to that domain um, and help them gain understanding that it's actually not like under the covers behind all of the jargon i mean there's some complexity there but it's not as complex as people think and that if they're interested actually getting and digging into crypto is not unattainable and so we talk about kind of how crypto got to where it is but also how you might implement a simple version of like a Bitcoin based cryptocurrency in Elixir, um, which is given the power of the beam, right? And given the nature of the language, it makes it pretty easy to do.
1: So I watched your talk from Mm ElixirConf and it was great because I think I'm perfectly in the target audience. I knew almost nothing about, uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and stuff and, like, it was super approachable for me and I got a lot out of it.
3: Oh, thank you. It's awesome. great. Chris, what about stacking theory?
0: Yeah. Um, I have the talk and uh, index cards in front of me on my desk. <laughs> <laughs> all, all stacked up? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. so all, all the Post-its that are attached to the index cards are stacked up. But yeah. Um, so, stacking theory, I think the... I don't know, I think J. Lewis may have invented that name. I don't know if there's prior art on that. Um, but uh, he talked about this, This he wrote this <laughs> Medium post um, that I've sort of like, I read and it really kind of, it resonated with me. So it's like, it's informed a lot of things I've done since then. Um, about being able to sort of look at a system as, a bunch of looking at rather not looking at a system, but looking at like the operational modes of a system as like layers. Um, so layer zero might be okay. So let's, let's take a Phoenix app, right? Cause it's an easy sort of thing to understand. And you've got a bunch of moving parts to a Phoenix app. You've got, you know, your, your actual, um, uh, web server like cowboy, which has to hook a port has to start accepting requests has to, you know, be supervised and run. And then you have a database and the database has to you know, hook to the database and like has to talk to the database, has to establish TCP connections, like whatever it's going to do. And the idea of the stacking theory stuff is like, if you look at how that system runs, we could actually break down each of those different modes into different layers. So layer zero might be the OTP app or the OTP release boots, like it comes up. And at that point, you can start to move to the layer one. And layer one might be um, where we have a web server running, but we don't have a database yet. But like the web server is running. And then layer two might be now we have our external connections to the database. And you move between these layers in sort of a best effort kind of way. So you do things like, okay, I'm going to try to hook the port now. If you can't hook the port, you fall back to like layer zero or whatever. What this allows you to do, if you implement that correctly, um, which is kind of, the, the the post doesn't really go into like how you do any of this. It's just more of like an idea. Um, so the talk hopefully is going to help demonstrate like how I've been trying to do some more of this. Um, but the idea would be like, if you have... You know your database connection and your database drops out and you're you can't you can no longer talk to the database again then you don't like uh kill the app or try to like kick over the instance or anything like that you you degrade back down to like layer one and layer one can then you know part of that process could be like sending out alarms or could be alerting um your load balancer to take you out of the load balancer or whatever but you you degrade gracefully again and then come back up as need be Um,
1: This sounds like, uh, is it run levels in Linux? Where when Linux comes up, it goes through various run levels. Am I right about this? Does anybody know? I don't know. I do yeah.
0: yes. <laughs> yes. yes,
2: it does. Uh, a lot of um, hardware development stuff too. You, you do that same kind of thing. Otherwise, uh, you know, if, if something crashes as you're coming up, you can't even light up uh, lights on your alarm panel if you don't have different like levels. So yeah, it's, mm. it's the same thing. That's what yeah. Linux does too.
1: And the Mac OS, uh, if you use the uh, Mac, sometimes you see this when, um, if something bad happens to your Mac and you go onto Apple's website and you're troubleshooting, they'll tell you, hold down these keys and start up to boot into safe mode. And right. safe mode is like a lower run level than you usually run in. It doesn't try to bring everything up. And because of that, there's actually a higher chance that your Mac will successfully boot into that scenario, right? And then you can troubleshoot from there. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty cool one of the
0: things,
3: That's really cool.
0: One of the things I've been trying to sort of emphasize too in this talk is like, you may or may not need to do this depending on your infrastructure and your application concerns. Like this is, I mean, these sorts of things are a real problem at Bleacher Report, because of like the amount of things that we run and the number of services, the number of nodes, the all that kind of stuff, and we and we see those degradations. Like on pure probability, we see those 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 things a lot more. Let alone like the the kind of traffic spikes that we get, so um, which tend to force degradations to happen, uh, or at least like increase the probabilistic chance that those degradations will happen. So we see we we end up having like, you know, I think. It's a truism that basically any sufficiently complicated system runs in degraded mode basically all the time. Like something is not working almost a hundred percent of the time. Now, how much that affects you is, is really what we're trying to like balance. Uh, but the trade off is you bring a lot of these like complexities into your system when you ask the system to take, to handle it. Like when you're starting to do these things yourself, you know, you're, you're owning a lot of that complexity and you really have to weigh whether or not that's like right for your system. So like your blog probably doesn't need to do this, uh, you know, but you know, any, like if you have a sufficiently complicated system that needs a certain amount of availability, you may want to start to like approach this problem from that and that, and for that standpoint.
1: It's cool to, to like not have your app be two binaries, right? Either it's up or it's down, right? Like, you know, maybe these parts are up, but this thing's down, you know, and not, not having to have those does um this is my own curiosity which you probably answer in the talk but does uh, elixir make this kind of building easier like because of the way it's designed with fault tolerance and stuff like that yeah we get i mean we
0: get to we have all these primitives that we get to just rely on to do all this kind of stuff like supervisors and whatever else um ets is actually a big part of that because i mean we use ets for basically like a, a a cache all the time like a local cache um very often especially around like circuit breakers uh so if a downstream service is down or is like overwhelmed and we need to like back off of them we'll just like kill the circuit and then fall back to a cache uh and the cache is maintained inside that stuff like that um and that's sort of a that's another layer to this like can we make outbound calls yes or no um and like, what do we do when we fall over? So we just have, we just get this run, this great runtime. Like as we were talking about earlier with all these amazing primitives to start to put these pieces together. Um, but there's definitely nothing right now that I think there's, there's nothing right now that like, will do this for you. Like you can't just use like the default supervision stuff like one for one um, out of the box. Like you start to have to really like think really pretty hard about how you're going to supervise these things. And you, you you to some degree get outside the the bounds of the supervision, like of what the supervisors themselves wanna do. So like one, uh, like a concrete example of that is, um, one pattern we've used is to have a supervisor that starts uh, effectively like a watchdog process and a dynamic supervisor. And the watchdog is like what actually starts the real process that is managed underneath the dynamic supervisor. And that way, and it monitors it Um, And that way if it crashes, it can do like exponential back off as opposed to like letting the, the normal supervision stuff like cascade and like kill the app or whatever. So we do, you get those primitives, but sometimes you have to do that like some of that stuff yourself um, and like, you know, just use the tools that are there um, in order to do those sorts of things.
1: That's super interesting.
0: Instead of relying on like, your normal um, restart intensities and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we do that too, but there's you know, you, you start to play around with a lot more of these like strategies and those sorts of things.
3: That sounds super interesting.
1: It is cool. Have you ever seen gin Retry? I have not seen gin Retry. What is what is gin Retry is a is a library. I can't remember if it's Erlang or Elixir, but um, it uh, it is basically a uh, supervision with exponential backoff and stuff like that. And oh, cool. Mm-hmm.
2: That sounds that sounds useful. There, I think there's also one that's just called retry.
1: One that's called uh, retry. Okay.
2: Yeah, but it may not be supervision trees, so that may be why. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's not. Okay.
1: I think retry does like supervised, but I may be wrong.
0: That be that's that's pretty useful because I mean getting the supervision stuff, getting that kind of stuff to work in the supervision trees is somewhat nontrivial. Right. Um because it's not really what the supervisors want to do. Right. Like, that's, that's not really their normal mode. So yeah. you're getting outside of their normal mode to some degree. It's also why I, I was really excited when they brought, like, when they built Dynamic Supervisor, because I was like, oh, sweet. We have this, like, really good tool that can do all this stuff for us now. Like, I use that yeah. so much. I'm uh, excited to hear it. it yeah, I'm excited good. to get it written.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm in the same place. I've like got all this stuff, and it's like, oh, yeah, now I have to put this together and turn it into a talk. You know?
3: I'm <laughs> yeah. excited for both of these talks. They're going to be great.
0: I, I'm
2: pretty
1: excited about the whole conference. Yeah, I'm just excited
0: that you're all coming
1: to Chattanooga. Yeah, I, don't have to go I love to... Chattanooga. It's going to be sad. <laughs> it's going to be cool. I've never been there. It's super nice. I like it. We are nice. also going to have a live recording of the Elixir Outlaws at Gig City Elixir. I don't
2: know if that was a good or a bad choice.
3: (laughs) (laughs) We'll find out.
2: It'll be our first live recording, so um, it 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 should be exciting.
3: It'll definitely be exciting.
0: I don't think that anybody believes that we're like super put together, but now they're definitely going to have it confirmed that we're not super put together.
1: (laughs) We just get on and start talking. (laughs)
3: It's going to be great. It's going to be well. They'll know,
1: right? They'll see. They'll see the truth. It'll be great. Get to see the sausage made right exactly yes. right.
0: so so i have been trying to think of what we should do, like maybe like we should have a section of like Q and A or something like that, like a little more I, engagement. I don't know, I feel like it's going to be weird if we're just up there talking to each other for that long in front of a bunch of people yeah.
2: Well, that's, <laughs> I, I, I have a, an extra mic that I'm planning on bringing
3: oh
2: cool um, so so that'll give us a, another mic to have I think we just have a hot seat. Just let anybody come up who wants to.
1: That's awesome. love you here's your,
2: here's your platform to say whatever you want. Oh, <laughs> uh, so um, on that uh, I, I'm going to go back to, to James's really quick on that continuum, you, he, you ask where on the continuum should we put that point of, of picking a library or building it ourselves? and I'm going to say uh, seven point4.
1: <laughs> that I'm making a slide right now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was gonna say 42.
1: Amos says 7.4. That's the slide. Oh man. P.S. He's oh, sitting means- right there in the audience. If you would like to go talk to him afterwards, he would love to discuss this with you. Can
2: you, <laughs> can you have a second slide that says Chris said? Well, actually, it's <laughs> well, actually. <laughs> You're welcome, Chris. (laughs) So good. Well,
3: Well, uh, oh, go ahead, Amos.
2: No, you're first.
3: I was going to say, thanks, James, for being on the show. This was super fun and for bringing such
1: good questions. Oh, thank you. It's been a long time since I've got to have a great discussion like this. It was really great.
3: Any parting thoughts from anyone?
1: I don't have thoughts. Yeah. Other than we're
3: <laughs> super excited about Gig City.
1: We are. Come see all of us there. It's going to be yeah, If there fun. are any tickets left, I think by the, by the time this comes out. There are a couple of tickets left. We had some uh we had we almost ran out and then we had some sponsors that had like blocked some tickets and so we went to them and we're like, "Okay, we really gotta know how many people are you sending cuz we're about full, and so that allowed us to release a few more, and I think we're at about fifteen left right now, so sweet, sweet. now's the time to scalp now's the time. Yep. make some money That's <laughs> not
3: what I was thinking, but sure: <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's not what you were thinking uh, we, should,
2: we should build a conference tech conference ticket scalping app. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, bring all the bad parts of sports to tech conferences. I agree. Yeah, yeah that's good. i Like, where your heads at, Amos? That's
3: where we really <laughs> want. It. Yeah. Oh man. Uh,
1: awesome.
2: Well, yeah. I know that that Anna's got to get
1: going. Yeah. Sorry. Thank y'all. you, Anna. It was good to see you, and I look yeah. forward to getting to meet you in person.
3: Yeah, me too. Thanks, y'all. this was super fun. It was so this nice. Is, to this is a
1: that. blast. Thanks for being on the show,
2: James. Yeah. Yes, thank you, Chris. Yeah. Thank you, Thank you, and. Right. and And tell the family that we all
1: said hello. I will. I will. (laughs) All right. See you later. Bye. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye. Bye.